Well, engaging the world. Uh, last week, for those who are here, I showed you the four E's that kind of we based our whole church uh, strategy on. That the four E's that we as Christ in Matters uh, used to help people move from being a complete outsider. Uh, to the faith who knows nothing about Jesus or church or, or anything like that, through to being a mature disciple. Now, I've got a slideshow here. If, uh, no, we're not going to fire it up there. Yeah. <coughs> it's coming. Hey, yeah, all right. Good. I'm on, I've got the controller. All right, the four E's. Engage, evangelise, establish Equip. What we're supposed to be doing is engaging with the outsider. Uh, then we evangelise those uh, who we get to know. We, we want to establish new Christians in the faith and help them understand about praying and coming to church and what it's going to mean to be a Christian. And then we want to equip each other as we move forward in maturity in order to be of more and more use to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we talked a bit about last week how, how that kind of shapes our, our church team, but we're thinking about each of these areas a little bit more deeply and just coming to, is this what God wants from us? Is that right? And how are we meant to do it? What does God want us to be doing? And so today we're talking about the first E, which is engaging. Now, I said last week, and a few people were shocked and came and questioned it afterwards, that Christian researchers tell us that 90% of Sydney siders say that they do not know anyone who is a Christian. I don't know if that shocks you or you heard it last week and you're not shocked anymore. The 90% of people who live in Sydney cannot, if you said, do you know, yeah, point to a Christian, they would not be able to think of one. That could be because the Christians they, they do know, they don't know that they're Christians because they're really silent. Uh, or it could be that we're just not connecting with, with all the subcultures and groups and new communities that are moving in. Now, that is stunning, isn't it? 90%, the vast bulk of our city, uh, wouldn't know who to ask what a Christian is or how to become one, let alone to gather why they would want to ever be one or why they need to become one. Now that represents a massive change in our society. If you went back 70 years to the 1950s, it's hard to imagine the 1950s was 70 years ago, so it's getting on, uh, things were very, very different. And I don't know if you can imagine some of the eight o'clockers didn't have to imagine because uh, uh, they were back there then. Um, there was a time when the church was almost completely connected with the community. Prior to the 60s, you had the situation where just about everyone went to one church or another. The vast majority went to Anglican or Roman Catholic churches and, and there were you know, the other little ones around there, Presbyterian, Baptist and so on. Uh, but everyone just about went to church or had some sort of strong association with the church. Uh, the shops were all closed on Sundays there was no such thing as sport on Sundays, either for your own kids or, or in TV. In fact, TV hadn't even been invented. And so on Sunday, everyone gathered at church. The butcher, the baker, the teacher, the accountant, the policeman, uh, and you knew everyone. And everyone knew you. Uh, most of the social events in the community happened in church halls, uh, dance nights, games nights. I'm reviving them at the rectory. But uh, church was just the place the community hung out and, and they used to come and be. Uh, Sunday schools were packed with kids from all over the area. In fact, even if you didn't go to church yourself, you knew you had to take your kids and dump them at the front door of the church for Sunday school. And so massive church halls were built all across Sydney to cater for kids' churches of 250 plus kids. 
See, the attitude was that being an Australian and being Christian were at one level one and the same thing. Now, it wasn't true, of course. There was lots of nominalism, and we know that a true Christian has a living relationship with God, and it's not about attendance and things like that. And a lot of participation was purely because it was expected or for social reasons. But, but can you imagine what it was like? It was a completely different world. And so you didn't have to work at all. You didn't have to work hard to engage with the outsider because there just really weren't that many outsiders in the first place. And those who were outsiders had, had taken themselves outside. You knew who they were and, and they had distanced themselves from you. But now it's very different. If you go to church at all, it's against the social norms. Uh, we no longer host all the community events. Uh, Sunday schools are now for kids, uh, for members' kids only. Uh, we have to fight and fight and fight and fight to keep scripture in schools. And I hope you're praying and, and whenever there's an article, you write about it and say, no, no, it's a really good thing. We need to keep it there. And, and churches are increasingly being viewed with suspicion and avoided like the plague. In fact, we've gone from being really super popular and the key to the community to being kind of just boring and you know old-fashioned and quaint through to now being uh, the enemy and the cause of all the social ills of hatred and misogyny and homophobia. We're to blame. Now, there's lots of reasons for those things, and I don't want to explore them today, and you might want to talk about over morning too, what, what the social changes have been that have caused that. But whatever the reason, there is a massive difference between the way that church used to engage with the community and, and the community with church to now. Before we were almost totally connected, now we're almost totally disconnected. And it leaves us with some very hard questions that we need to answer. Society has changed. What should we do? Uh, should we engage with it at all? And if we were to do so, how would we go about it? What would we be trying to achieve, uh, even if we wanted to? Now, it strikes me that Mark Driscoll, uh, the now ousted American preacher, uh, was onto something before he got kicked out uh, when he identified four very different responses that Christians and churches have made to these questions about engagement with the community. He says that churches have tended to adopt one of four different philosophies or strategies in relation to engage in the community at large. Uh, the first one is this. What's that? Anyone know? It's a bomb shelter. There you go. Uh, church is a bomb shelter. That is, the world is dark and things are coming to an end. The culture is getting more and more antagonistic and the church is, is the safe place where God's people huddle together to preserve their theology and traditions and values to educate their children, to just sort of hold out and live through the assault of secularism on the population. And, and churches like that that sort of bunker down uh, tend to shrink and, and in the end they become musician, museums to what God used to do. Uh, but uh, if they do grow, they grow through having lots of kids. Uh, and the hope is that enough of the kids are going to stay around through Sunday school and youth group in order to keep the church viable in the long run. Uh, and the reality is that churches like that are essentially non-factors in the community. The Christians love it. No one's getting saved. Society's not being challenged or changed. And that's the bomb shelter mentality. Our second response is this. What's that? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Yeah, church as a mirror. That is the church just starts to mirror or reflect 
society's views and values. Uh, the argument goes, uh, for those who want to make it, we're made in the image of God and so we're supposed to be reflecting God to society to mirror God. But what really happens is it doesn't mirror God to the society, it mirrors society back to God. And so if the society believes in homosexuality now, well, we'll believe in homosexuality too. If society doesn't want to accept that people are sinful or evil, well, we'll stop believing it ourselves. Uh, if if you know, society won't accept that Jesus alone says, well, we don't believe it either. Chuck your Bible out. Don't hold to anything difficult or challenging. And in most parts of the country, that's what the mainstream church is like, a mirror reflecting the secular community's views. And it's all done in the name of relevance. And it's now so relevant, it's completely irrelevant because it's got nothing to offer. It's got no challenge. It's got no gospel. There's nothing to say. There's no repentance. And it's unfaithful. Third response, the leech. There you go, church as a leech. Uh, you know leeches? Uh, anyone been bushwalking recently and picked up a leech? Anyone walk, had a leech before? And you're walking along, you get the squelchy sock, and you realise something's wrong and blood licking down in there. Uh, <laughs> leeches, they latch on and they suck your blood and all the goodness. Uh, so church as a leech, it does engage with the community around about, but only in order to keep itself going. Uh, leech kind of churches use the society. They, they use the privileges of yesteryear. They use the tax breaks. They use the historic advantages and the buildings. But it doesn't love the community. It just sucks out what it needs to continue on. And as a result, those kind of churches are seen as exceedingly selfish, only existing to preserve their own interests at the expense of everyone else. And that kind of church is despised by the community because they see it as harming and taking rather than serving and contributing to the overall good. So any of those sound familiar so far? You know, bunker down, uh, just mirror and, and, and reflect what society's saying uh, or, or just be the leech and, and suck the goodness out. Well, the fourth response that Driscoll uh, uh, says is out there is, is church as an oasis. An oasis. A church is a place where people are welcome and people are encouraged. People find life and forgiveness and so on. But they find it in the only way that's possible to find it, that is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the bread of life, who offers rest to weary souls. And they find that rest through coming to faith and repentance, through, through challenge and through change. And so church as an oasis really offers us something. It's not scared to engage. It's open to people coming. In fact, it, it invites, uh, it wants to engage because it, has, it wants to offer life and rest in Jesus Christ. So there's four very different approaches and responses to whether and how the church should engage with the community. Bomb shelter. A mirror, the leech, and an oasis. And it'd be interesting, maybe you're thinking even now, you know, through through different churches and which ones might be which and, and which one are we? Uh, and then you might you might come up to different answers to that, but but which one should we be, do you think? Which one would you want to be if you were gonna be in one of those four churches? I heard Abigail. She's got an answer. Which one? Oasis! Oasis, yeah, so we can sing uh, mediocre songs from Manchester. Anyway, that's right. Um, sorry, band joke. Um, isn't that the kind of thing, an oasis, what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? 
Um, Matthew 5, 13 onwards, so it was our first reading, I've got it on the screen. Uh, this is what Jesus says about the church that he's building. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill, um, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp or put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So which of the four kinds of views of church is, is Jesus talking about? What's a city on a hill like? It's a beacon. It's, a, it's an oasis. It's a light to a dark world. It's a city on a hill which stands out and offers hope and shelter. He's not talking about hiding away and being a bombshell. In fact, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Uh, he's not talking about being the same as everyone else because the salt that loses its saltiness is no different to the bland uh, rubbish that's around. Well, it's, not, it's worthless. You've got to chuck that out. And it's not a leech. It's not taking. It's giving. Church is an oasis that, that really offers something that's not scared. Uh, it's an oasis. It's countercultural. It's a church made up of people who live openly out of love for Jesus in worship and in witness. In the host of the community would see that through Jesus there is a new and better way of life, that there is a true and living relationship with God and that there is an eternity that is worth spending with God in heaven. Salt and light. 1 Peter 2 says much the same thing, that Jesus is, is gathering for himself a people who are going to be called a holy nation, a people devoted to God, a royal priesthood, that we may declare the praises of him uh, who, who saved us so that they may glorify Jesus on the day that he comes to visit us. And in fact, isn't that what we saw last week in 2 Corinthians 5, that when we thought about what our purpose here on earth is, the reason that, that God hasn't just zapped us all away the moment we become Christians or the moment, the reason he hasn't come yet to destroy the earth and to claim his inheritance and wipe out all opposition yet, the reason he's given us at least this one more hot day on earth is because there are still people who need saving. And God has left us here, as we saw in that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, to be his ambassadors. We are Christ's ambassadors. People who are so gripped by Jesus that we are compelled by Jesus' love, his love for us, and his love for the world, that we live for him and not for ourselves. And, and that starts to change the way we live and the way we see and think. And as a result, we see the world through through new eyes, which, which perceive what really matters and what doesn't. It doesn't matter if people are rich or poor or fat or thin or what culture they're from. What matters is whether people are in Christ or not in Christ, whether they are a new creation or not. And we go with the Jesus message on our lips, be reconciled to God. Now, that's all well and good. And we might well say, Amen, on the inside, because we're Australians. Uh, if we're American, we'd say it out loud, even if we had no idea what the preacher had been raving on about for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> but but uh, the trouble is, when it comes to the reality of what Jesus is talking about, it's a little bit daunting, isn't it? Being a salt and light, being an oasis. Most of us find the idea of actually talking to people about our faith and deep things are just a little bit fearful and frightening. It's kind of scary as we start to think about opening up our, 
our lives to others and opening up our hearts to others, maybe opening our homes to others and opening our mouths to tell people that we love Jesus and why. And I'm not any less scared because I'm a minister. Right? I'm just paid and so there's kind of an expectation that goes with the salary. <laughs> kind of, you know, the, I've, yeah, I've got to be forthright. Indeed, it's the fact that it's scary is what drives churches either to become bomb shelters because it's just too hard to face the world or to become a mirror because you'll never be criticised if you're just the same as the world. But if we're afraid, I want to say there's some incredible assurances that we've got to remember. We've got to remember that we've got a great God. In fact, we've got a God who is greater than the world. He made the world. He owns it. We've got to remember that God stands with his people in the midst of their persecutions. And sometimes it's through the pain that great things are accomplished by the Spirit of God. You think of uh, when Stephen was martyred. You know, he's being stoned to death, first Christian martyr. And uh, the great crowd hated him. Who was standing there supervising, organising it all? This guy called Saul. Saul happened to become a Christian not long after when he met Jesus personally. And through the witness of God's faithful servants and through the personal encounter with Jesus, he was transformed. And uh, not only that, as the church was persecuted in Jerusalem, the people scattered through, throughout the land of Israel and up into Turkey and further afield. And you know what they did when they went? They said, we're Christians. And here's... Here's why and here's what's so good about it. And all sorts of people all over the place started becoming Christians. All as a result of this evil thing that was happening. We've got to remember that whatever happens to us, nothing can take away our relationship with God. We're perfectly safe in that. Uh, Our assurance of salvation, God's love for us. We rest assured knowing where we're going. And I can say that is enormously freeing. You see, the world may crucify me, but that's all they can do. In fact, if they did, I get to go home to heaven. You know? And so, yeah, big whoop if they hate me. You know, it makes you feel kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi in the original Star Wars. You remember he's fighting Darth Vader at the end and he puts down his, uh, his uh, lightsaber and he says, Vader, if you strike me down, I'll only become more powerful. feel a bit like that when you realise Nothing can take, you know, nothing can damage your relationship with God and you only get the benefit of heaven if they kill you. But I want to move beyond just giving you a pep talk and saying, well, let's go get them. Uh, I want to get down to brass tacks and say, how do we engage? What do we do if we're not sure about how do we even get started doing it? Now, Dave's going to share a little bit later about some ways that we're going to do that structurally as a church and things we've got in place and things we're planning. But what do we do now at a personal level? I'm going to talk at the personal level. How do we start to make connections and build new relationships with just some of the vast throng of people around us who know nothing of Jesus and his greatness and his gospel and what what we really think? How can we meet and how can we foster and develop those relationships so that down the track we can share Jesus in a meaningful way? And I want to take you to a part of the Bible that just begins to open that up for us. It's our other reading in Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4. You may want to flip this one up. See, Paul's writing to some Christians he has never met over in, uh, over in what is modern-day Turkey. Now, he didn't evangelise the Colossians. His friend 
and, and, and fellow missionary Epaphras had gone over there and he'd been testifying about Jesus and, and some people became Christians and, and they'd started this small church uh, in the city. But the Roman Empire wasn't necessarily an easy place to be a Christian. In fact, I think it was much like what we ourselves now face. A community that was puzzled by, that was suspicious and even antagonistic towards Jesus and his followers. In fact, it was a community that started to blame uh, the rise of Christianity for all the social ills that Rome was now facing. And in fact, just around this time, they went a few steps further and they began arresting Christians uh, and even sentencing them to horrific and brutal deaths, torn apart by lions in the in the in the Colosseum just for entertainment for the crowds. You know, who wants to volunteer for that one? Anyone a Christian? <laughs> um, it was a difficult time and place to be a Christian. And so Paul sent this letter to these Colossian believers who uh, who he's never met, he's only heard about them, to remind them just how wonderful and how important it is that they belong to Jesus, that Jesus is God that he is the king, he is the one who reconciles us to himself. And to help them to understand the transformation that coming to know Jesus is supposed to make in their lives. But he gets to the end of the letter and he talks in chapter 4 about how we Christians can begin to to engage uh, with the outside world, even in the face of hostility. And so pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 4. I'll just read it again. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Season with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. How to engage with the world. Now you can tell just how important Paul thinks what he's about to say is because of that phrase at the start of verse 2. Be devoted to. To be devoted to something is to give it constant attention, to to cherish it, to nurture it, to to persevere with it. If I'm devoted to football, I will live and breathe it and you may know people about that. Uh, I still play football, or I play futsal, yeah, pretend football. We won the grand final the other day. Uh, very exciting. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm really devoted to it, though, right? If I stop next week, who cares? If I was devoted to handcrafts, and you all know my knitting skills, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, you'll find me knitting or sewing all the time in front of the TV. Actually, I know other people like that. But what are we as the believers to be devoted to? He says, devote yourselves, pursue, you know, persevere in, do it all the time. Prayer. Give constant attention. Don't let it slide. Now, it's very easy to let prayer slip off the radar, isn't it? It's not that we plan to. It's just that everything else just seems to get in the way, um, whether it's life or the, uh, the issues we're facing uh, or the dumb distractions around us like TV. They all seem more immediate and in our face and demand attention now. But we've got to realise that while prayer is never the most urgent thing in our lives, it is the most important thing we need to do. Prayer is the lifeblood of our relationship with God. Prayer is the greatest privilege we have as God's children. And prayer is our greatest need. See, God is God. 
and he is the determiner of all of our days. And so we've got to learn to rely on him and not on ourselves. And, and we do that by praying, by asking him to act, by asking him to watch over our lives, by, by thanking him and asking us to, to continue providing and to care for our needs and all those other things. But as we start to gather more and more what God is like and who he is and what his passions are and, and why he has placed us here on this earth, that's going to start affecting and moulding our desires and so that we'll start to, to ask him and beg him, urge him to be using us as his ambassadors and, and to moving by his Holy Spirit in the lives of the lost and, and to be using us in, in his great work of salvation. Indeed, if you follow on from Paul's charge to them to be devoted for, to prayer, what is the thing he asked them to pray for? Be devoted to prayer, being watchful and thankful, Pray for me as an ambassador for Christ. How does he say it? Verse 3. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. What, what does he want these Christians to be praying for him in regard to his own witness? Well, he wants them to pray for opportunities and he wants them to pray for clarity. He says pray for opportunities for me. You know, Pray that the doors may be open for me to speak. Pray that, pray that he wouldn't be silenced. Pray that the right conversations will happen with the right people at the right time. But it's not just opportunities Paul wants them to pray for him. He says pray also for clarity. Do you think that's weird? The Apostle Paul, the great missionary who wrote half the Bible, says uh, you need to pray for me that I might be clear on the gospel as I explain it to people. Why? Why? Yeah, he's asking them to pray that he wouldn't botch it up when those opportunities do come. That he have the right words to say that he wouldn't fudge the harvest because I think it's so easy in the face of our own fears and what might happen to dumb the gospel down and take the challenges out in order to, to, to make it sound friendlier and for us to be loved. And, and Paul doesn't want to do that. Why? Because a false gospel is not going to save anyone. It will just confirm them on the broad road to destruction. And so we need to pray. And we need to pray for each other in these things as well. We need to pray for ourselves, for opportunities and for clarity. Opportunities to engage. Opportunities to be clear about what God's on about. And you know what, the funny thing, I've just noticed, every time someone I know has started to pray for opportunities uh, to engage with others or to speak about Jesus, do you know what happens? They start to see those opportunities everywhere. And they get either all excited or really, really scared. And they're like, oh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> you know? Uh, so take Paul's dare. Pray for opportunities. Pray for clarity. Second thing to do, he says, is to learn, live wisely. Now, I've got this up here as well. Sorry. So we've got to pray. That's the first thing. Second thing he says, live wisely in order to build opportunities and then start taking those opportunities. So we ask God that there be opportunities, the door be open, but then we've got to live in such a way as to create those opportunities and then we want to take them. He says in verse 5, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. How do you be wise in the way you act towards outsiders? Well, I think partly it's a matter of, uh, of being a consistent Christian, being known as a Christian and being consistent in our Christian lives, you know, not being a hypocrite, not being a fool, 
not being a Sunday-only kind of Christian, not giving people the impression that Christians are all a bunch of wallies uh, who don't take God seriously. But it's more than that. Being wise in what you are like and what you do and creating the opportunities to build, well, this is the R, to build relationships. They are saying, okay, how can I really care for this person? How can I really, you know, nurture them or challenge them even? It involves being someone who's trustworthy, someone who's kind, someone who doesn't show contempt for people or look down on them because they're a little bit different. It involves being someone who is worth knowing and relating to, being someone who people want to get to know, creating opportunities for discussions on real issues, being someone whose opinion is worth hearing. Okay, that's a challenging thing. Being someone whose opinion is worth hearing. In fact, that's the third thing that Paul has to say to the Colossians in which God wants to urge on us to be someone who has good things to say all the time. You see that drummed home in verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let your words be full of grace. That's not just being polite, you know, all kinds of nice people out there saying pleases and thank yous. We're trying to teach the girls that. It's very, very difficult. But he's not talking about it. He's talking about having a whole way of speaking in our conversations that, in the words of John Calvin, the great reformer, may allure the hearers by its profitableness. Yeah, I love that phrase. A way of speaking that may allure its hearers by its profitableness. It's worth knowing and hearing these words, and it will draw people in. You know, some of us, like me, uh, like to run our mouths off all the time, and we've got to learn to stop and think before we speak. You know, we're kind of not just idly prattling on and whatever pops into our heads and taking one foot of our mouths only to shove the other one in in the next moment. <laughs> but on the contrary, how is it described? Our words are to be seasoned with salt. That is, they are to stand out. They are words to savour. There's to be a depth to our conversations. And in practice, I think that means looking for, well, that's the E here, entry points. Entry points in conversations in order to turn them just to more weighty matters, to deeper things. Uh, things that are of import, that, that matter. Things that maybe even God may have something to say on this matter, even if it's not the gospel in a nutshell. It's, it's you know what? God can change lives. I mean, how many gripes about politics around, you know, the, the coffee machine at work could be turned to discussions of, of whether justice matters or, you know, what, what is most important in, in life and in a community or in a country? How many conversations, could, you know, that we hear about children and grandchildren that we actually stick in some advice from the scriptures because God's got something to say about kids he invented them after all, uh, and he's got lots to say in the matter. Or, or maybe you know, turn the way that God relates to us as his children and God wants people in his family. That would, that would be a good entry point, wouldn't it? Uh, been with Hermoyne up in palliative care. Good news, she's... Um, they've been so good to her in palliative care that she's had this mini revival uh, and they might be sending her home so <laughs> she won't die in the next two weeks but um, <laughs> anyway uh, I, I won't spare the gory details about how the treatment helped her but anyway but I was in there visiting the other day and I, I was there for three quarters of an hour most of which was occupied by doctors and nurses and they kept saying oh you must be you know how are you going you know have you sorted out your affairs she's like 
That's great. I know Jesus. Um, I know where I'm going when I die, and I know he last minute he's with me now. And in fact, you should know that too. <laughs> to these Indonesian doctors, it was just it was fantastic. I sat there and praying for the doctor you know, while she's talking. Um, it's great. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> uh, Alison was down at Centrelink uh, the other day, and uh, there were three ladies. Uh, she'll she'll correct the details over morning tea. I'll give you the, the, the summary that I remember. And there were there was uh, two ladies who were together, and there was another lady who they didn't know, or apparently didn't know, uh, and she was having a gripe about someone in her life who was a mongrel and would never change and could never change, you know, an alcoholic husband or something like that. And and one of the the young lady of the two that were together I turned out to obviously be a Christian, just turned and said, you know what, in the Old Testament there's this guy called Hezekiah, and um, his dad was a mongrel, King Ahaz. Bad guy. And Hezekiah didn't start off very well. But you know what? God changed his life around. And so people can change with God on their side. And they ended up somehow swapping phone numbers, meeting, and they're going to meet up. <laughs> I don't know what they're going to discuss, but isn't that wonderful? There's an entry point that you would never expect of. And sometimes you get the day after and you think of the thing you should have said and you're like, ah, oh, if I don't Well, if you know the person, ring and say, look, I've just been reflecting on the conversation we were having yesterday. And, you know, it strikes me that, you know, there's this matter that gets raised out of that. Entry points. Words of grace. Know how to answer people. Part of that is learned, though, isn't it? Thinking through the scriptures and, and training ourselves in order to think God's thoughts after and, and how does God think about the big issues that, are, that our community is facing, that people are facing. Uh, are facing. So, P-R-E. Pre. Prayer, relationships, entry points. I nicked that from David Mansfield at Anglican Aid. Okay? And it's pre because it's pre-evangelism. That's all leading up to what we're going to look at next week. How do you actually share the gospel with people? And so I thought that was cute. But anyway. But let's remember what we're on about. There is nothing more important in a person's life than they reconnect with the one that made them and who will judge them one day. And we are left here as Christ's ambassadors with his message of how they can do that, how they can be reconciled to God through Jesus. And so let's get praying. Let's be wise in the way that we act so that we can create opportunities and build relationships. And let's have conversations that are seasoned with salt and start to think through how, how we can get God and his ways, just start to get them into our conversations and into our relationships. And then we'll start to really know how to engage with those around us in our own lives. Now let me pray uh, and then we'll sing and then Dave's going to come and share some ways that we're going to do that church and then we'll pray again. Uh, Father Matters. Father, these are challenging words as we think through our own fears of rejection. Have we seen what's happened to Christians in the past in horrible parts of the world or in the present in some parts of the world? Yeah, you know, we can be daunted about sharing our lives. We pray that you'll help us to overcome that fear. Help us to know why we are here and to long for others to come to know Jesus with the love that he has shown us, that we, that would drive us and that we'd be able to start to engage with those around us. Please help us to be in prayer constantly, uh, not just for our own needs but for this world that is lost for our neighbours, for our friends, that you might bring them to know Jesus. 
We pray that we might be building the relationships even with complete strangers and looking for those entry points so that we can turn conversations to things of importance. Please help us and forgive us where we've been flippant, where we've been stupid, where we've been hypocritical and help us to be the people who are worth knowing whose conversations are full of grace and seasoned with salt and give us the wisdom to know how to answer questions that come up and to know how to talk about Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory, for the salvation of men and women all over this area, in this city and land and this world. In his name we pray. Amen.